those of you who don't like the sound of this, stand by, because this is the way America's going to be. This idea of giving it to someone who woke up with their symptoms is crazy. Unfortunately, words are just words, except in courts of law. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, again, it's the April edition of Risk Management Monthly. This is, as you are well aware, the medical legal version of Good Morning Vietnam. (laughs) So uh, while we're talking about this, Rick, we've got today a great guest host who's going to be interacting with us on all of this stuff. We've got great wines. We've got great cases. We can't screw this up. Oh, oh yeah, we you know? could. Yeah, we well, can. Well, and by the way, to our friends who write in, call in, send things in, to Yosef Liebman in Israel, first of all, Yosef, uh, we disappointed in the last time. But you know what? We'll try and do better this time. And uh, by the way, that's an interesting place to be visiting, Professor. I told you when I was there, they keep the guns, their guns on the table. It's, it's amazing. And I said to him, you know, they got guns. And he said, yeah, but we haven't shot a visiting professor in weeks, so it's probably all right. Uh, Rick, why don't you introduce our guest host today? Hey, Michael, uh, Frank's on the line. Michael's been with us in the past, and um, he did a pro-con column in uh, ASAP Now regarding asset protection that I thought was very interesting. And oddly enough, we got a case on this. So, Michael, welcome aboard. Glad to be here, Rick. You know, uh, Michael is the uh, general counsel and director of risk management for uh, EMP in Canton, Ohio, and um, uh, basically has been uh, their counsel for uh, a long, long time. Um, you want to you um, basically get started on this uh, first case, Greg, because this gets involved in this issue of asset protection, which Michael is going to kind of delve into uh, yeah, no, I, I think this is a good idea and something to get going. And by the way, once I read that article, uh, Michael, remember, I gave him a phone call because I thought it was uh, well done and uh, needed to be done. So we're going to amplify on that today. And we have a letter from one of our listeners. Uh, hi, uh, Dr. Henry and Dr. Bucata. Jeez, he's very polite. Uh, he, there was recently a settled case in Massachusetts this week. Uh, and it had to do with a misdiagnosis, and um, he speaks with some bias on this case because he knew the doctor involved, who was extremely compassionate, kind, competent physician. Uh, regardless, this case is disturbing uh, to everyone involved because it was a 23-year-old uh, who came in with simple flu presentation, cough, chest pain, temp of 100.7, Respiratory rate of 18, uh, I would assume reasonably normal pulse ox, and diagnosed with viral bronchitis, ended up dying the next morning, and the postmortem showed myocarditis. Somehow, the plaintiff's attorney was able to convince the jury that a standard of care was violated because no EKG was done, and the jury decided in favor of the plaintiff. What our listener would like to what our listener would like to know is, can can we discuss how this can can be or how should it be, and why should something like this force us to change our usual practice? He's terrified of the thought of changing how he approaches viral illnesses to catch the one in a million myocarditis. 
His concern is about the legal precedent this sets uh, in the state of Massachusetts. He is also concerned because the ruling, which went in favor at $4.7 million, uh, and his current policy for the doctor covers $1 million. What happens to the rest of the settlement? How often are our personal assets sought in these types of cases? And I think, Mike Frank, this is a perfect lead-in to you to give us some thoughts. Sure. And, and this is disturbing on a number of different fronts, but the one front it shouldn't be disturbing on is whether it should change our practice. There's an old adage that bad cases make bad law. Well, this is a bad case, and you don't want it making, uh, making law or actually directing your practice. Uh, we don't know all the facts of the case or how the case was presented in court, but it, it's pretty clear that, uh, that myocarditis is not something which can be diagnosed based on a presentation which looks like bronchitis. Moreover, as uh, I'm sure Greg and Rick would agree, um, even if you could make the diagnosis, there's not much you can do about it. So in terms of proximate cause, um, this verdict is an outlier. I should say, first of all, that the fact that there's a a $4.8 million verdict, that makes the front page, it makes all the headlines. What we don't see is two or three years down the road where the verdict has been set aside, reversed, uh, decreased, or whatever. And just to, you know, if the if the f- physician wants to know how this will actually turn out, uh, and I'll get to the comments from my uh, ASAP Now article, which will explain that in just a minute. But if you want to know how it's going to turn out, now is not not the time to ask the question, because usually it takes several years before that will happen. Just as a a counterpoint, there was another myocarditis case in New York, uh, which was actually decided in 2010. And by the way, this was not a settlement. This was a jury verdict, both in the the $4.8 million case and in the case I'm going to tell you about. In this New York case, uh, it involved a four-year-old who also had something like a viral illness and who succumbed to myocarditis. The jury in that case awarded $3 million. And of course, that made all sorts of big headlines. Uh, the case actually started in 2004. Um, and the the jury uh, decision was in 2008. And that's not unusual. It takes a long time for these things to get through the court. So the big headlines were $3 million jury verdict. Well, the next headline, which really didn't make much press, was that the judge in that case, in response to post-trial motions, ruled that the jury's award was influenced by passion, by emotion, and he decreased the verdict down to $300,000. Well, this was not satisfactory to either party. The plaintiffs didn't like it because they wanted their $3 million, and the defense didn't like it because they believed as we probably believe that there should have been no award at all. So this was appealed to the New York uh, uh, Appellate Division. And in that case, in a fairly unusual decision, they not only – they didn't send it back down to the to the trial court. They reversed the verdict entirely. They set it aside, said that based on the testimony that was given, there was really no basis for the jury to make even any kind of decision. They said there was no proximate cause. There was no evidence based on proximate cause. And so basically, in this case, the plaintiff went away with nothing. Now, that appellate decision came about in 2010, which was two years after the jury decision. 
And quite frankly, that's actually pretty quick. We've had some experience with these over-limits cases in our own company. Uh, in one case, we had a $21 million verdict uh, against us, which was crazy to start with. Uh, we, uh, we went up on appeal, and there were negotiations which were going on uh, while the appeal was going on. Uh, the actual settlement is confidential, but I can tell you right now that it was nowhere near, I mean, not even close by orders of magnitude to the uh, to the $21 million, which actually increased to about $30 million before, after the uh, interest was, was added. But what happens with these over-limit cases in response to this physician's concern about only having $1 million of coverage, uh, over-limits verdicts get a lot of press. First of all, they're very unusual. So that's to start with. They're unusual to start with. Next of all, we hear a lot about these cases because they make press, but they're unusual, and what we don't hear about is any physicians who actually had to cough up their own assets to pay over-limits verdicts. Uh, as a general rule, there are a number of different scenarios which will be followed after an over-limits verdict, including the case I just told you about, namely that it will be appealed. One of the other possible scenarios is that the uh, defense attorney will go to the plaintiff attorney at that point. And say, look, you know, there are, uh, there are appealable issues in this case. Congratulations on having won a jury verdict of $3 million. Um, but we think the appellate court may overturn this. So we're going to appeal it. Tell you what, let's make a deal. We'll tender policy limits of a $1 million to you now as a compromise. You agree not to enforce the judgment. And we'll just let it go for that. Now, what do you think the plaintiff attorney is going to do, especially after he consults with his client who's been waiting four, six years or more for anything? And, and, and you know, it, it sounds funny, but in the case I told you about with the $21 million verdict, one of the things which actually incentivized the final settlement was that the decedent's wife got tired of waiting. She was living in a trailer and, uh, you know, she wanted some of her money. Um, and that had a lot to do with uh, how the settlement went. And so the plaintiff attorney is going to explain to the client, look, you know, we got this big verdict, but it's being uh, it'll be appealed. And there's always the chance that we may get nothing. And that's one of the things which which really has to always enter into settlement negotiations or plaintiff attorneys uh, and defense attorneys will always try and figure out what uh, verdict ranges will be. And plaintiff attorneys are fond of, fond of starting at a higher number and saying, well, we think the, uh, the, uh, the verdict range will be anywhere from a million to $5 million. And that's wrong. I mean, your verdict range always starts at zero. Your verdict range is anywhere from zero to $5 million. And so the plaintiff attorney will explain that to the client and say, look, we can either take the million dollars now or we can run the risk of getting nothing. What do you want to do? Not only that, but the plaintiff attorneys usually are skilled at medical malpractice cases. Their business is not going after physicians' assets. They're not good at it. They don't know how to do it. And quite frankly, they're not interested in it. One of the uh, things I quoted in that article was uh, a very well-known uh, and prolific 
a medical malpractice plaintiff attorney in Las Vegas who was interviewed about this subject in connection with a med mal case. And he made it very clear. He said, we don't chase after physicians' assets. I've never done it. And he said that uh, that we want uh, higher limits, but based on a case, if the, higher, if the limits are there, we'll accept those. Uh, but we don't chase after physicians' assets. So that's that's one scenario that there'll be a settlement. Another scenario that's possible uh, is that, and this is kind of ironic, but the uh, the defendant physician uh, gets in bed with the uh, the plaintiff attorney, not literally, Greg, but just yeah, yeah, uh, I understand. Fig- figuratively, um, and basically says, look. Um, I have a claim against my insurance company, what's called a bad faith claim for failing to protect my interests by settling the case before it went to trial. So I have this bad faith claim, and I'll tell you what, let's make a deal. I will give you my interest in that bad faith claim, what in law is called a subrogated interest. I will subrogate my claim my bad faith claim against the insurance company, and in return, you will forgive my debt based on the jury verdict. Uh, And I have seen this happen as well. And insurance law is not intuitive. And you may say, well, if if the insurance company had been bugging the physician to settle it all along and the physician had been steadfastly refusing to settle, the insurance company will bring that up. But that scenario alone does not protect or insulate the insurance company against the bad faith claim. Uh, this was one of the issues that was raised in our $21 million verdict um, uh, case. Uh, and in insurance law, there still can be a claim. So those are a couple of the different scenarios that can happen with these, uh, with these over-limit verdicts. But one of the things you're really not going to see is physicians' assets being attached. Um, Mike, let me let, give let, a, let, uh, let me go ahead. Let me just w- make one more comment. The other thing which you have to really understand is that these are so unusual because um, very few cases actually go to trial. They're either settled or dismissed. And of the cases that actually do go to trial, as pointed out during the interview with Bruce Fagel, uh last month and uh, in, in in other issues of Risk Management Monthly. 75% or more of medical malpractice cases are decided in physicians' favor, which, by the way, Bruce Fagel shows that uh, that means the system is working. To, <laughs> uh, in my perspective, it means that the system is not working because that means if there are so many cases that are being decided in favor of the physicians, it means there are way too many cases, meritless cases being brought against physicians. Now, go ahead. Well, I was going to make the comment that uh, to put some perspective on this, uh, I've I've done since 1976 about 2,400 medical legal cases. I've been involved in one way or another. Of the 2,400, I know two doctors who uh, had some personal assets attached, and one of those, I then became his expert against the insurance company on the bad faith claim. We not only got his money back, but also there were some punitive damages in that case. So when, when, when the young docs talk to me about financial protection, do I think they need to think about their risk and all that sort of thumb, uh, thing, I, I usually say you're much more likely to lose your money to your wife in a divorce case 
you know, 50% of a year docs get divorced, you're much more likely to lose it uh, in some other form of case other than medical malpractice. I think medical malpractice seems to me the safest thing for your assets in general. And, and there are plenty of good reasons to protect your assets. Malpractice is probably the bottom of the list, at least in my personal experience. Yeah, you've obviously had good good experience with this. And, and by the way, bad faith claims against insurance company are by their their nature and almost by definition uh, punitive damage claims, which is why insurance companies uh, really pay attention to those claims. And by the way, if you ever want to be popular, be a doctor opposing an insurance company. Nobody likes insurance companies. And, you know, I work for insurance companies. I ran two insurance companies. I didn't even like me when I ran the two insurance companies. Although, so, um, Michael, uh, there was a fellow who wrote the uh, other side uh, regarding asset protection. And I think one of the points that he made was that if you happen to have a lot of assets that are uh, in pretty liquid form, they uh, you may be um, – off the bell and that, you know, if you're like Greg Henry, they may choose to go after your huge liquid <laughs> assets uh, because most stocks aren't going to have the kind of money that Greg Henry has. But when you once you understand what Greg has, it's like, you know, would he not be an exception to the rule? Um, come on, Rick. I, the only <laughs> liquid asset I have is I'm in Michigan. The snow is melting, and my house is floating no, away. You, your, okay, liquid ash, your liquid <laughs> asset is Louis, Louis the Thirteenth. Is that in your in your cabinet shelf? Over yes. There? Okay. Yeah, I do have a bottle of Louis Trez in the cabinet. Right. But other than that, uh, going after personal assets is much tougher than people think it is. And well, that, uh, most docs have met with their advisors, have done things that make it real tough to get that money. Wouldn't you say, Mike? Yeah, actually, if you have enough money that you really want to uh, put it away, you're probably going to have en enough money to pay the lawyers to defend you. You know, but, you know, yeah. if Bill Gates ever goes to medical school, yeah, may maybe he'll he should do something to protect his assets. But I don't think he's going to have to worry much. You know, I As thought this case uh, really was uh, really kind of remarkable that a um, they could get experts to say that an EKG should have been done in this case. Um, and I think we're going to talk a little bit later about egregious uh, expert testimony. Now, we've talked about that before, but we're going to talk about it in terms of a new um, a problem associated with egregious testimony, which is much worse than, uh, you know, the Daubert challenge and all that other stuff that has been talked about in the past. I just wanted to spend one minute on this myocarditis diagnosis, because although our friend basically gave us a little outline of this case, he left off what I thought was a little conspicuous about the heart rate. And I think right. one of the tip-offs to these cases, and there's certainly a needle in a haystack and they're hard as heck and it's just a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, is that these heart rates could be disproportionately fast for what you would expect with this temperature. And there's also this issue is, is there any evidence of failure, clinical evidence of failure? Now, you know, it's always easy to be a Monday morning quarterback on these cases, but those are two things I think that you know we can take home as maybe um, a little reminder that these things do crop up. And when you see a disproportionately rapid heartbeat in somebody who's got a viral syndrome, you got to think of this diagnosis. Rick, in all fairness, 
you and I have seen thousands of viral cases, which we did not did not get EKGs. Oh, on. I'm not saying I, that an EKG. I thought that this lawyering in this case was atrocious. To uh, to be candid, for them to get away with the idea that an EKG should have been done in this case, I think was is a, is a bit of a stretch. And then for our colleague to say, now is this establishing you know some standards in the state of Massachusetts? You know, we we certainly hope that, that uh, that's not uh, the case. Should we move on to our next topic? Sure. Uh, this, sure is the, this is the case about the uh, piercing of the corporate veil. Um, of a, This is regarding a group here in Southern California. Um, Greg, do you know the, the long and short of that case? No, uh, you know it better than I do, Rick, because I've got some other uh, uh, penetrating the corporate veil cases I'll put on top of this. So start off for us, will you? Well, I think that this was a, a, a bad case. It was, I think it was a missed MI kind of thing. There was um, a big money uh, settlement. The uh, lawyers apparently weren't super knowledgeable about uh, malpractice, but they were knowledgeable about corporate law. And one of the things that they did in this case, when the when the judgment was substantial and it was exceeding the the limits of these guys' policies, is basically started looking at their books, and saying, you know, guys, uh, the fact is that you have not acted like a corporation. You have not. You have. You don't have any co- corporate minutes that you do annually. You're not. Uh, you're not signing your documents with uh, you know corporates. Uh, uh, you know uh, the corporate name after your after your. Um, um, Whatever, whatever the writing, and they effectively basically showed that this group really wasn't acting like a California corporation at all, and they therefore um, attached the assets of about seven of these doctors. These doctors wound up uh, putting their houses, uh, getting second mortgages on their houses, and it was a real, real, real mess for a number of years. Ultimately, ultimately, they wound up. Prevailing, they wound up suing their own insurance company for um, allowing all of these bad things to happen. But the whole gist of it was, um, if you're a corporation, at least in California, you better act like a corporation. You got to keep your minutes. You got to, you know, you have your corporate documents. You got to, you got to, you can't fake it. And uh, uh, that was the lesson to be learned here. Mike, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, well, it's called following the corporate form, Rick. Um, and as long as you do follow the form, it doesn't have to be very complicated, but it can't be a sham. And if it's shown to be a sham, then the corporation will sh- be uh, be regarded as what's called the alter ego of the, the uh, people who constitute the corporation. And in those situations, the assets can be attached. Well, there's, there's other areas, too, that – that lawyers are probing. Um, I'm not at liberty to discuss two of the cases I'm working on right now, but in those cases, I'm the expert for the larger corporation, not for the medical facts, but what is the, the usual and customary behavior of a large contract group? What do they actually do? Because what they're trying to do is, is pierce the veil of the state PC which is then subservient in some ways to the national organization, the larger group. Uh, This has huge ramifications, and I I cannot discuss this at this time. But when it's a settled case, I'd like to have Mike on 
to 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 carry this on because this is of interest to a lot of groups around the United States about the various ways of going after various pots of money. So we'll ask Mike yeah. to come back in five years when this case is uh, settled. Is that, <laughs> that what you had in mind? Uh, um, we got a real quickie here. This is a, a note from a doc. Uh, does the request for a summary judgment require the defendant's deposition to be taken? Well, I, I would no. assume the answer is yes. No, the answer is no. No. Um, you, you, you can make a summary judgment motion at any time. The, the qu- question is whether you've actually got enough. Summary judgment motion basically is saying uh, even if we accept everything that the plaintiff is saying, they can't prevail. Um, for example, let's say, that, let's say in medical malpractice cases, you must have expert testimony to support your position in order to prevail. And let's say there's a medical malpractice case against a cardiologist and an emergency physician. And the uh, plaintiff has a cardiologist as an expert. And the cardiologist is deposed. And the cardiologist renders testimony that the cardiologist was negligent, but gives no testimony uh, that the emergency physician was negligent. Well, under those circumstances, even if the defendant physician, the defendant emergency physician has not been deposed at that point, the defense of the emergency physician can go to the court and ask for summary judgment and say, even if we accept everything that the plaintiff has said, they do not have any testimony that the emergency physician was negligent and they cannot prevail and thus we ought to be... uh, have judgment rendered for the emergency physician. Whether or not the emergency physician is deposed has nothing to do with the summary judgment motion. Now, on the other hand, let's say that the cardiologist had given testimony that the emergency physician was negligent in a state which accepts that. And there are states which would not accept a cardiologist's uh, testimony to that effect. If they do have some statement, that was all they would need no matter how egregious that statement is, that would be all the plaintiff would need to defeat the summary judgment motion. In most states now, Rick, there has to be an affidavit of merit or something which is filed against each of the named um, defendants. So if you have a cardiologist, as Mike brought up, a cardiologist signs something. If it's an emergency doc, they sign something. If it's the hospital or the nursing, they have these things in a packet, which they staple. And and Mike's right. It doesn't matter how silly it may sound to us medically. There's got to be something there that that, that the court requires you to refute what's been said. Now, the court's not deciding who's right or it's wrong. What it's saying is they have a right for this to be heard uh, in front of a jury of their peers. Right. Okay, uh, listen, let's go on to the uh, next case, Greg. If you don't mind summarizing that case with the uh, thirty-five to 42,000 visit ED staff by one. Oh, oh yes. Oh, my God. This is interesting. Uh, again, we have interesting uh, listeners, Mike. There's no question about it. And this is, a, this is a great case to discuss. 
It's a 35 to 42,000 visit ED, which we've all worked in, staffed by one board certified EP and several advanced practice clinicians. And by the way, for those of you who don't like the sound of this, stand by because this is the way America is going to be. And if you think it's any different, you're just wrong. Uh, what they were doing, uh, it, what they're upset about is they're now being asked, I don't know why they're now being asked, to go to the floor and intubate if anesthesia is busy. They are being asked to go to the pediatric codes because the hospitalists are primarily trained in internal medicine. So the question from our our, uh, listener is, what risks are associated with this practice when a busy ED is left open by the emergency physician? Wow. I mean, where do you start with this? You know, one? the idea here was they were just being asked to do more and more and more things on the floor. And the more they did, the more they were being asked to do. And so um, where does where does this end? How did they deal with it is really the thrust of this. Uh, Michael, any thoughts? Well, both of you are absolutely correct that this is a trend in emergency medicine right now. Hospitals are asking more and more uh, times for emergency physicians to do things outside of the emergency department. That trend is growing. It's not going to stop. Greg, you're absolutely correct. It is going to expand. In in the last year, we've seen not only requests from our hospitals to be available for codes on the floor, and that was probably the most common one that uh, the emergency physician, who was the only physician in the house, would be asked to respond to cardiac arrests, Uh, on the floor. But in the past year, we've seen uh, requests that we uh, respond to insert central lines, Mm -hmm. uh, requests for intubation, elective intubations. We are negotiating uh, a request to attend precipitous deliveries, which uh, are so precipitous that the pediatrician who usually attends the the delivery is not available. So we're being asked to cover that. and you know that's just those are just a few of the ones that we're actually looking at. All of these carry with it the risk of uh, leaving the emergency department uncovered, of abandoning patients. Um, the one thing that's really correct, I know Rick, you've pointed this out, is you don't want to respond to these with just no, we won't do that. That's not what we do. This is actually what we are going to be doing as emergency physicians, as the healthcare landscape changes. Uh, hospitals are depend, depending more, in, in a way, it's kind of, uh, it's a compliment to us. You know, years ago, the last, last person a hospital would have asked to do anything important would be the emergency physicians. Um, uh, and we remember those times, but now this is like a vote of this. This is a vote of confidence. This is saying, you know, we know you guys are, are really good, and we need somebody to do these things. So we're asking you to do these things, Mike. We have tried to. Sorry, go ahead. Well, Mike, here's the problem with this. You and I both lived through this. I remember in '76. Uh, when I was delivering babies. Uh, Is that 1876? It was 1876. <laughs> it was right after I took care of Lincoln. You remember how that went, right? Okay. It didn't go well. But, no. but, they, but they would ask us to do everything. And I, de- I delivered 250 kids in my career. Uh, they're, they're, we have to kind of start asking questions. We fought against this. And now, because of business competitive reasons, we're actually inventing bad care all over again. Did you ever get a call to go to the floor on anything good? And here's the real problem. 
it's almost never minute to minute that they need a central line. Someone can, can come in from that service and do it. And when you're under pressure to do things, I think there's more like, it's more likely you will do it wrong. Wouldn't you say that, Mike? Yeah, and for the central lines, you're, you're correct. What we've negotiated with the hospital for that is uh, to pay a stipend for someone to be on call who is not the physician on duty in the emergency department. So we've negotiated for that. Um, you know, you're also right that these are high risk situations. Uh, generally, the equipment is not there. Uh, the uh, the, the floor personnel are not emergency personnel. So these are high-risk situations, and we generally try and negotiate uh, with the hospital so they will indemnify us in the case of, uh, of liability claims with these situations. The other thing that we try to negotiate is that they will uh, indemnify us completely if there is any claim against the emergency physician by an emergency department patient who claims abandonment because the physician went to the floor. We also try and uh, negotiate that the emergency physician will have discretion to not go to the floor if they are needed, if they, their judgment, they are needed to take care of a patient at the bedside in the emergency department. They can elect not to go to the floor. And in those cases, the hospital needs to indemnify us for any claim by the hospital inpatient that the emergency physician did not respond. I mean, what we can't do is be whipsawed uh, between the decision to abandon a patient in the ED or not respond to a patient on the floor. Yeah, I think in to a very great degree, as hospitals become just a little bit larger and there are other people in-house the care actually does get better. Um, you shouldn't be running back and forth to the floor as the emergency physician. Uh, what I'm seeing is in those places where they have an emergency doc supervising, for example, three PAs, uh, then the claim is made by administration. Well, your PAs are seeing the, the people in the ER, and they can run codes, and they can intubate, and they can do all, all that sort of thing. So they want you to be a sort of a, a free roving back covering problems wherever they appear in the emergency department. And to some extent, that's sort of why the attendings got paid. The other thing is I looked at those cases, uh, codes on the floor. The nurses knew those patients were going to code long before they coded. Half of them, we shouldn't have been called anyway because they should have been allowed to quietly die. The other half probably should have been uh, moved to the ICU earlier. Uh, but, But a lot of times... There's no primary process thinking here. The administration says, well, have the ER do it. Well, that's not really adequate for us. And I think the insurance carriers ought to get involved and say, hmm, why were we not involved in this discussion of whose liability is covered where and when when these things happen? Yeah, well, I think you're you're swimming against the current with that, Greg. I know. No, no matter how how they actually come up with it, uh, the fact is this is uh, this is a trend. It's going to continue. Um, the, the other thing is, you know, if you want to get back to basics here, a forty-two thousand visit ED is not a single coverage ED. I don't care how many advanced practice clinicians you've got in there. This is not that is not a single coverage situation. Yeah, you that's saw also him. a trend, Mike. Mike. 
this is a trend. No, I'm telling you, no. At seeing it everywhere. Honestly, I, I I agree fully with Mike. There's no way a forty-two thousand visit ER, a thirty-five thousand visit ER with one emergency physician. Um, fortunately, I'm not revealing this doctor's name who wrote this, but uh, I was just absolutely floored and shocked that they would be able to staff this uh, with one emergency physician. Please, Ricky. Ricky, we've been friends for 35 years. I'm telling you, th- we're being forced toward this. No, and Mike, no. Mike will tell you that they're getting pushed more and more. After all, I believe, you and I believe, that every case seen by the, the PA should at least be run by the doc. Well, you know, actually... Nobody's uh, doing that anymore, either. No, and I think, to be fair, uh, in the past... I think we maybe even cited uh, Michael's group as one where that was the case. But, you know, over time, these policies change. And I think, Ma- Michael, you would acknowledge that, that your policy has been uh, modified a bit. Yes, it has. And I think, Greg, you know, we're only talking a matter of degree. I agree, agree with you, Greg, completely that this is a trend to utilize advanced practice clinicians, mid-levels, more and more. But I also agree with Rick in terms of the numbers. I mean, you have to get to some kind of number. I mean, what is your number, Greg? 70,000, 80,000? For me, 42,000 is enough to say there's got to be a second physician there. Well, I'd love, I'm, I'm telling both of you guys this, you're going to see a fight down the road about how many physicians do you need to supervise how many um, advanced practice uh, people uh, if during each phase of what we do. Um, this is a fight which ASEP or AAEM or any of the groups is deathly afraid to take on and make a real statement. They're afraid of it because yeah. when you start doing that, now you're setting yourself up for liability. Uh, another set of questions in court, doctor, how many, how many people did you have to supervise? How many got out of there that you didn't see at all? And you and I both, all of us know that a lot of the cases we get sued on, that, that young man who had, the, um, who had the myocarditis, I bet that's a case that wouldn't have been run by the attending physician. Yeah, and there there are some states which have restrictions on the number of uh, advanced practice clinicians that one physician can supervise. And so if we don't do it, uh, the state legislatures and the state medical boards are going to do it for us. Well, remember you know, anesthesia. It, anesthesia got into that problem with how many how many nurse anesthetists could they supervise? Sure. Some some sure. of those guys said, "I can do eight. I can do ten. Well, you know, we don't have an answer to this yet. You know, know, uh, Greg, before we leave this subject, um, I want to point out something that's really ironic. You know, we thought that having hospitalists would solve a lot of these problems because they would take care of things on the floor. And not only that, but we wouldn't, wouldn't be asked to write admission orders anymore. One of the things I'm beginning to see, not just in one site, but in several sites now, is the hospitalists are now asking us to write the admission orders because they're busy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know what? At a certain point in time, we got to start saying, wait a minute, who's in charge of this? I think what you should do is say, we'll get rid of the um, hospitalists and the outside docs. We'll just run the whole damn thing. Because the bottom line here is if they're too busy to write orders on a patient, how do they know that acute patient who's just come in? And the way I remember it, the billing covers for the 
primary physician admitting a case covers the history, physical, and orders for that first day. Right. You know, uh, at our hospital, uh, I think it's related to the size of the hospital and the resources of the hospital. Uh, at our community hospital, we had no physician in the building after uh, 5 o'clock at night. And so if there was a precipitous delivery and they couldn't, you know, get somebody to come in, it, it was us. And uh, if somebody needed a uh, pre-code intubation, it was us. However... In larger hospitals where they have hospitalists and they have an OB anesthesiologist, it would seem that um, there's an opportunity for the chief medical officer, to, particularly if these people are employees of the hospital, if the anesthesiologists are employees and the hospitalists are employees and the emergency physicians are employees, that basically somehow it would be uh, reasonable to um, adjudicate who's going to do what when they can, because a lot of times... You have an OB anesthesiologist who's just basically sitting around doing absolutely nothing because that's what's required of a hospital that does uh, a OB, that you have an anesthesiologist in the building 24-7. So um, I don't know that we can take all of this on, particularly, you know, in our, our place, we saw 24,000 patients. Um, it was not a place where you could justify having two physicians by, you know, pretty much any means. You know, is and one of the things the doctor asked is, well, what about bringing these patients down to the ER? Like he talked about, you know, bringing a pediatric code to the ER. You know, I don't know that that makes um, a lot of sense. By the time they get down there, the elevator and all this other stuff, it, you know, it's going to be 20 minutes. Yeah, if I, had to, if I had to run upstairs anymore, Rick, they'd have to be coding me as I got to the top floor. It'd be just crazy. Let me Let me get back to the one point that you made about what should we be doing, what should other people be doing. I honestly believe in a place like Los Angeles, which has a hospital on almost every corner, Rick, you either have the correct OB units large enough that they can take care of this problem or get out of the OB business. There's no reason in, in L.A. County that, that any hospital uh, that, that states that they can deliver and handle kids – shouldn't do it right. I mean, I remember the old days when we ran up and delivered kids. The truth of the matter was that isn't as good. And and I think that uh, we ought to just get on the right side of this issue. I, I don't see that supporting people who are doing semi-practice is a good thing. Well, I think that this is a tough problem. I don't know that I think that there are any easy answers. I think that you know, it is nice that the hospital views us as the go-to people to help solve a lot of their problems. And I think they're going to be coming to us to be the admission center uh, for the hospital very shortly, where we're going to be diverting patients. Now you can go to a nursing home because we got rid of the two-day stay rule. Uh, we're going to have you come into the uh, observation unit, and we're going to take care of you there and try to avoid admitting you. Or we're going to make a good decision uh, about who needs to be admitted and who not. Um we are the center of, you know, half the admissions now, but I think it's going to get even more important that we really get good at sorting out who goes where. Yeah, if it isn't elective surgery at our place, it's 85% of the admissions come through the emergency department, and every internist says the same thing. You guys work them up so well uh, and do all the damn work. Please go ahead and do that for us, because uh, we'd rather you do it than the hospitalists. Greg, you yeah. want? Go ahead. Uh, um. No, I was just saying it, it, it. It's a vote of confidence for us. I mean, again, you know, you know, Greg, Rick, 
you both and I remember the times when basically we were relegated to deciding who needed to be admitted and who could be sent home. And the last thing the admitting physicians wanted was to hear our opinion about what was really wrong with the patient. Yep, exactly. Uh, we've Our residents uh, have no concept of the battles that were fought early on in this. But uh, I'll tell you right now, most places I talk to, they'd rather have emergency medicine residents on the service, medicine, peds, that sort of, than their own residents. Why? Because they work harder. And I, I think that that's probably the truth. Rick, we got to take this one case uh, on the uh, neurologists are asking these emergency docs to give TPA to people who wake up from sleep with a stroke. They've decided they think this ought to be done. Now, I'm just going to say that if somebody wanted me to do that, I'd want Michael Frank there slapping these guys around the head saying, show me the literature, show me the money, show me who's going to take the liability. Are you guys signing off? Can we, can we get a letter of indemnification from the hospital? I think this is just crazy crap. There isn't well, yeah, one I, paper in the literature that defends this. Well, understand that TPA is not a, a drug. It's a religion. Yes, uh, and it's very hard. It's it's very hard to argue against religion. We are seeing the the criteria for administration, the the exclusions and the inclusions. We are seeing them bent and broken by neurologists and other clinicians who are just just hell bent for leather. They are going to give this stuff to patients who have a stroke, and they're just ignoring the uh, the restriction. I mean, this idea of giving it to someone who woke up with their symptoms is crazy. I mean, there's no other word for it. It's crazy. Yeah, oh, oh, absolutely. And to think that the neurologists, after looking at literature, would, would want us to do this, I think there's, there's a failure here somewhere. And I think if we ever get sued, the neurologists are just going to say, well, the ER docs did that. It's not us. We didn't, uh, we didn't start this. I, I think this is a dangerous precedent, and I'd want to know if I was the insurer on this case, I'd certainly uh, want to know who's passing this stuff along because it's just wrong. Well, you know, this is stuff for the uh, uh, medical staff. They have the neurology committee. They have the exec medical committee. This, this stuff basically could be sorted out uh, in advance. This should be driven by uh, the neurologists. They basically have to come to the table and show their evidence because we know that this is kind of a, a dangerous business. Greg, just give me one second here. Because I want to go back to the doc who liked our interview with Bruce Stegel. <laughs> the reason I okay. say that is because we've had a couple of docs who went nuts because we softballed both of these interviews, the one with Bruce and the one we did a couple of years ago with the uh, other plaintiff attorney. And yeah. I just wanted to make the point, it's not our job to arm wrestle these guys. This is an interview. It's basically them rendering their opinion and they're telling us their position and their point of view. And it's like, don't beat us up because we, you know, didn't convert this guy back to being a uh, defendant's attorney. Come on now. Yeah, I, I, we can't we can't uh, beat every guy up who comes we on are the show. Gentlemen, we're gentlemen. <laughs> we're gentlemen. We're gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But wait, wait, wait a minute. Oh, geez, I'm not going to be go. called. Here I'm not. Go. I'm not going to be called off the chase by you, Rick. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> just because you you don't think that it's your job to to beat up these guys doesn't mean that you don't have some responsibility to challenge them. And I was glad to see, for example, when. Uh, 
you know, when, when Fagel was saying that it's not personal and doctors shouldn't take these things personally, I was really glad to see at least Greg challenged him on that for a little bit. You know, there were so many other things that couldn't be challenged. You know, I've dealt with Bruce Fagel personally in cases. He's been the plaintiff attorney in suits. And his standard lawsuit complaint against physicians says the following, and I'll read it to you, and I, I know it's in every one of the lawsuits he files. It says, defendants negligently, carelessly, and unskillfully examined, treated, triaged, et cetera, et cetera. Now, don't tell me that you shouldn't take that personally. That's the standard stuff, and the fact is he doesn't need to phrase it that way, but that's the way it's phrased, and the job of the plaintiff attorney is to make the defendant physician look bad and to make the jury dislike him. So yeah. don't tell me, don't tell me their job is not to make it personal. He'll, it's he, to make it personal. He'll take you to lunch afterwards. <laughs> yeah, of course he will. <laughs> uh, his job is to make you feel so, I mean, he's supposed to make your mother feel bad that she had somebody as dumb as you who somehow got into medical school, who somehow uh, egregiously did this. And that brings us to our next letter. Well, I tell you, I'm, we've sworn off doing plaintiff attorneys. That's it. Done. Finished. Right. No more. Uh, but right. they can they can still take you to dinner, though, right, Rick? Okay. The article written uh, in EP Monthly by uh, Sullivan, uh, D-O-J-D, we wanted to comment on. Yeah, this is not and, Dan Sullivan. This is William Sullivan. We this is William sure. Sullivan. And yeah, it's, yeah, this it's is, not this is This is scary stuff. Absolutely well, scary. No question about it. Go, well, go he starts out with uh, some of these questions about in, in Georgia, 2005, courts redefine gross negligence as being equivalent to the failure to exercise even a slight degree of care and a lack of the diligence uh, that even careless men are accustomed to exercise. What it means is, Pretty much, you have to uh, to uh, they have to complain of a thumbnail, and you have to cut their heads off. I mean, pretty much, that's what this says. Unfortunately, words are just words, except in courts of law. And so, what that means is, you have to get a somebody who's a big enough liar to say those words in that form in court. And in theory, this level of evidence should be a very high bar. Uh, and that should be a good thing. But but there are plenty of examples when experts assert a what I consider to be uh, their own negligence by making claims uh, in court. Yeah, the, uh, the idea here is that we're going to try to have some malpractice reform. And one of the elements of that reform is to change the rules uh, in terms of what will be considered to be uh, negligence. And so standard. What the standard is, right? And so they they came up with this terminology, which you know it would which is really 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 raising the bar. And um, let me give you a case. So there's a 15 year old boy presented to the emergency department with left chest pain. He had an arthroscopic knee surgery one week prior. He had normal vital signs and quote unquote perfect perfect pulse ox. An exam, EKG, and chest X-ray were performed both of which were interpreted as all as normal. Pain was relieved with Toradol, and the patient was discharged with the diagnosis of pleurisy, and he was given a prescription for naproxen. Two weeks later, the patient uh, developed pain again, and uh, shortness of breath, he was transported to the ED and died of bilateral pulmonary emboli. 
An initial court dismissed the lawsuit because the case failed to meet the gross negligence standards of the state of Georgia. An appellate court upheld the initial decision. However, take it from there, Greg, about the the Supreme Court. Yeah, this goes to the Georgia Supreme Court, uh, which is in Georgia. That's sort of top of the heap when it comes to this kind of litigation. And uh, they had testimony from some big names in emergency medicine. You want to name those big names? Yeah, sure. Peter Rosen, uh, uh, Stephen um, uh, Gabayev, both said that uh, in their experience, and Rosen even said, based on his experience of diagnosing hundreds of PEs. Hundreds, if not thousands of PEs, Not thousands of PEs, yeah, quote, unquote. Uh, he to pick this one up and not to get a uh, CTA of this kid's chest was uh, negligence. Now, you know, to me, this is an obvious Daubert challenge case. Uh, this this should not stand. This is testimony. And he said that this they did nothing to prove or disprove. There was no discussion of Wells criteria. There was no discussion of a Bayesian analysis of the data. There was nothing. In my opinion, this guy is grossly negligent, and I think that kind of uh, testimony is reprehensible. However, uh, the Supreme Court found the defendant guilty of gross negligence Negligence. because the the testimony of the experts made it sound like this guy was a total idiot. Um, Right. They said it was – the uh, experts said – the uh, care was grossly improper, egregious, and contrary to well-known and fundamental medical principles, despite everything that this person did. So what are the consequences of being found guilty of gross negligence as defined in Georgia? Here is where the unintended consequences come up. Mike, do you want to go through some of those? Well, you know, let, let me just go back a little bit. What the Supreme Court said, this gets back to our discussion about uh, about. Um, summary judgment motions. What the Supreme Court said was that the lower court should not have dismissed this because there was testimony that from Rosen and Gabeff that uh, that the actions constituted gross negligence. Now, as a general rule, that should be a decision of the court, not of the jury. There should be a threshold where the court, that is the judge, decides that the, the evidence does not constitute gross negligence within the statutory requirement. The Supreme Court took it out of the hands of both the uh, uh, the trial court and the appellate court and made the opposite uh, decision. Um, the consequences, of course, gross negligence is considered to be pretty heinous uh, by your insurance company, uh, by, uh, by the health care insurance companies, by hospital medical staffs. And as a result, if you get a jury verdict which says that you're, you, you've you been found guilty of gross negligence, you can have your uh, staff privileges uh, revoked. You can have your insurance coverage uh, 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 declined. You can be booted out of various uh, health care plans and uh, even Medicare, Medicaid government plans can kick you out. These are the unintended consequences. And it all comes from the testimony of these physicians, which really derives, Greg, Greg, I don't think it's that they're lying. I think it comes from their mistaken belief that medical malpractice cases are searches for truth and that they believe that the physician did something wrong and should have to pay and the patients should be protected. Uh, This is a mistaken notion 
of what medical malpractice cases are all about. You know, my understanding is that the uh, medical boards in many states are obligated to investigate uh, allegations of uh, or proof of gross negligence. And one of the things that was noted here is that the medical board in Illinois can impose a $10,000 fine for each act of gross negligence. This is considered to be nasty, nasty, nasty. And you're right, all about your privileges. It's not just about a malpractice award anymore. This is about your ability to work, potentially. Here's something that, that's, that should really be looked at carefully. The insurance company, under the way the Georgia decision is written, could, could defend under what they call rights of reservation. But they don't necessarily have to provide the money to pay the indemnity payment because it was, quote, unquote, gross negligence. That means the physician, the $10,000 fine to me, the 10000 bucks is nothing. If they got through and an inflamed jury gave $2 million and the insurance company said, well, we, we, we insured you against standard malpractice, not gross negligence. You know, this insurance under rights of reservation question is going to come up. And I know that Mike, being both an MD and a JD, when they're doing their insurances, knows how to write this stuff up in the policies. Be, this is the kind of thing that hospitals might even back away from, saying we don't have to contribute to this decision because the doctor was grossly negligent. Yeah, I think one of the first things that's going to happen in Georgia as a result of this decision is that there's going to be, be rewriting of a lot of medical malpractice policies to cover uh, decisions of gross negligence because otherwise, what value is your medical malpractice insurance coverage if the standard uh, is gross negligence to start with? I mean, basically, this case throws out what that standard means legally. Uh, should we move on? Um, yes. I mean, I, I did want to do the slate breaking thing. Uh, I saw in the Wall Street Journal just um, a couple of days ago this story about an initiative uh, being uh, started in California. You know, we have the referendum policy. If you get 500,000 signatures, you can put anything on the ballot in November. So there's, you know, there's at least 25 initiatives being uh, circulated around. In fact, I just went to the supermarket and there's a guy out there with three clipboards. You know, sign here, sign here, sign here, which allows these things to become on on the ballot. But in any case, this democracy got crazy. You yeah, understand, exactly. Rick? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, in California, we have the uh, micro thing, which limited uh, awards for pain and suffering to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That was uh, passed in nineteen seventy five, the year I got out of my residency. And so now there is this push to um, challenge uh, three things. One of all, one of them is they want to update this $250,000 thing and say, listen, just include the um, cost of living increase, and this would be $1.1 million now. So that's part of the referendum. We want to make it tagged to uh, cost of living or whatever other thing that they tag it to. Number two, you'll love this, drug testing, mandated random drug testing for employed and contracted hospital physicians. The, uh, also, if there is any kind of adverse event, they want you to turn yourself in within 12 hours for, to the hospital for drug testing. If you do not turn yourself in within 12 hours for drug testing, it will be assumed that your test is uh, positive. They also want to mandate that you be drug tested if one of your patients gets into some kind of problem related to prescription drugs because 
there is one of the founders of this whole referendum is is a father who had two children killed by a car driven under the influence of prescription drugs. And so this is uh, generating that. And the third thing that they want you to do is to be mandated to check the state database with regards to um, your patient when you're prescribing uh, Schedule Two or Schedule Three uh, drugs. So this is probably going to be on the ballot. They said in this article from the Wall Street Journal that all of these elements have been tested in, in focus groups, and, and the citizens particularly like the idea of drug testing doctors. That's because citizens are particularly idiots when it comes to <laughs> so, the question of what works. So I got a question for you, Rick. So given the fact that Bruce, K, Bruce Fagel in his public service announcement that uh, appear, appeared on Risk Management Monthly oh, supported, all, supported all these things, do you still believe him when he said that he, he was there to help us? He's, no, he, I don't think he's there <laughs> yeah, to help us. No, no, no. That, that's a stretch, Michael. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, the fact is there's no evidence to show that there is absolutely no data to support the idea that physicians sh- should be drug tested or need to be drug tested in the case of any adverse event. That's ridiculous. And especially when we go back to the statistics we, we said before, where whereas most cases are settled and 75 or more percent of the cases against physicians are adjudicated in favor of the physicians. So where is the evidence that we need to equate physicians with uh, with semi-tractor trailer drivers who get in accidents? Uh, that's a stretch. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly agree. Uh, there, are several stre- wait, there are several stretches here. I, I don't disagree with the fact that if they came up with a number in 1975 – um, that number is probably low and probably should be tagged to some index. That way we don't have to talk about it. I mean, it's the purchasing power of the dollar at some moment in time. I don't mind giving them that. It's when they hook it to all this other crap, which is absolutely crazy. They're making an artificial duty to third party here that has has no proof. Why should it matter, by the way, that we look up everybody on this schedule two or three drugs. If we as physicians believe they've got a drug problem, I understand that. If they've broken their leg, does that mean everybody with a broken leg has to be, has to, we have to query the bank? They're faking. That's crazy. They're faking that broken leg. They're faking the broken leg. I think we're so desperate in this country to have an answer to a problem that we're inventing things which we think might work with no proof that it answers the initial problem. And this is crazy. When a referendum is uh, put before the uh, citizens, uh, there is an official paragraph that explains the referendum and also does an analysis of what the cost of that referendum may be to the state of California. It was suggested that once this cap goes to a million dollars, there's going to be a lot more lawsuits than there are now because it is not worth suing for $250,000. So a million dollars is is not exactly chump change. So there are going to be more suits. And it's estimated that the states are going to pay somewhere between 10, now obviously this is an estimate, and $100 million in increased malpractice costs to deal with the fact that this limit has been substantially uh, increased. Yeah, I don't you think understand, they understand. You, understand, you understand, Rick, that the, the whole idea 
that the plaintiffs are pushing this increased limit has very little to do with the idea that the cost of living has increased because this is non-economic damages. It's not supposed to compensate you for the cost right. of anything. But because many plaintiff attorneys figure, well, my my one-third or my uh, 40% of 250000 is not enough, so uh, I'd like it to be a million or a million one because then I – Figure okay for three hundred thousand, uh, it's worth going into. So yes, there'll be more more lawsuits. You know, on the issue of drug testing, I think we ought to point out that uh, aside from the issue of adverse events, one of the things that we have found, we have a in our company, we have a substance abuse policy, and we have encouraged our directors to try and be alert for signs that a physician is having trouble, and to have a fairly low threshold for doing substance abuse testing. Uh, and we've had a fair degree of success with identifying and bringing back into health uh, physicians who are otherwise suffering from substance abuse problems. And I think that, that, that needs to be disseminated. Yeah, I think we're talking about um, helping rather than punishing. And I think that um, this makes it this is kind of on the punishment end because it basically uh, makes certain assumptions that, and you know, you'd have to, one of these rules in this referendum is that if you test positive, it de facto doesn't mean that you're guilty. It means that an investigation will take place to see whether you were compromised, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the lawyers ought to be tested every time they go into court, <laughs> see what they think about that. You know, uh, all of the costs of this initiative regarding drug testing are to be borne by the physicians. You will be charged for the drug test that is done on you randomly. You will be charged for any other drug test. Patients are not to pay for it. The hospital is not to pay for it whatsoever. And one of the annoying things is I just got my renewal notice for the state of California for my license, which I think is every two years, I think, $820, $820 in the state of California to practice medicine. Now, my wife's an attorney. Does she get a bill for $820 to practice law? No way, no way. So I think that this is just more of the prejudice against doctors. By the way, do you think in the California State House there are more attorneys or physicians? <laughs> what do you think about that, Rick? I mean, have you thought about this, really? Yes, I Come have on. thought about it. Hey, listen, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's move on because I did want to get to asking Michael about any kinds of trends that he's seeing uh, in, the, uh, in the business of uh, attacking doctors for care. What you're telling me, Rick, is I'm shut out from doing any cases this week, this month, but that's okay. Well, listen, we don't have Michael on all the time. You're on all the time. So next, I know. you know, I promise. Okay. All right. So, Michael, what well, do you the think? Well, the trends we're seeing, again, are bringing in advanced practice uh, uh, clinicians into cases. That's one of the things that we're seeing. We're also seeing um, with electronic medical records are becoming very important in cases, especially audit trails and metadata. Uh, the plaintiff attorneys are becoming very sophisticated about this and are using discrepancies between electronic records uh, and paper records, both in terms of time and what uh, what is documented, as well as discrepancies between various drafts or various parts of the electronic medical record, um, using those against defendant physicians. In some cases, the 
it's interesting that there is no one definitive medical record when you have an electronic medical record system. There's only data in there. And we've seen very frustrated plaintiff attorneys demanding that they get the medical record. And they have trouble understanding is that there is no longer the medical record. It's just data. And you can format it any way you want uh, so that there may be more than one uh, draft of uh, medical record. The other things we're seeing just in terms of uh, um, uh, clinical entities, we are seeing more cases of epidural abscess than we've ever seen before. Uh, we're seeing a spate of cauda equina syndrome cases. And uh, more recently, we've seen cases of, uh, of hyponatremia where there's been too rapid elevation of the serum sodium with resulting demyelination syndrome. Uh, surprisingly, um, I hadn't seen a case of this in probably uh, 20 years, and uh, in the last two or three years, we've seen three cases. Mm. Um, and and so uh, those are trends we're seeing. Uh, Gregory, we're into this 68 minutes, so we have time. You, you want to throw in a case for 10 minutes? Well, I want to answer back to Mike here about uh, trends. Uh, it, well, we're, well, we've got you here. I'm going to throw out something which I want – Everybody who's listening who's a director to understand that this looking for drug abuse in doctors, although I hate what's proposed in California, at the local level, uh, when we talked about this at the Director's Academy of ASEP, all the experienced people on the panel sitting there, I said, I'm going to propose that the one thing you look for is whenever they're late for work, there's on a chronic basis, there's three reasons, depression, drugs, divorce. And uh, everybody kind of looked at me and said, you know, I haven't thought of it that way, but that's exactly right. <laughs> that's what we think about when they're chronically late for work. What's, what have been your keys to figuring out whether a physician is, is abusing drugs? Uh, I, uh, the one thing which we, we've pointed out is a change in the physician's usual demeanor, uh, a sudden drop in Patient satisfaction scores, for example. Uh, new complaints about a physician being testy. Nurses say, uh, you know, Dr. Henry is usually such a sweet guy and we get along with him. Now he's snapping at us all, all of a sudden. Uh, so changes in behavior, changes in, in demeanor. Those are the things we uh, will usually look for. Also, calling off from work. We've had a few cases where physicians would call off from work and they said they were sick, and this happened a few times, and we began to wonder. Uh, and we tested and found out it was it was not that they were sick, is that they had a substance abuse problem. Michael, do Ch your do your uh, doctors agree when they work with you to random drug testing? Um, yes, that's part of our policy. Is that uh, um, there can be random drug testing? We generally don't do it. It's usually. Uh, targeted for mm -hmm. some of the things yes. I just talked about, but right. our policy uh, allows for random drug testing. We're at 70 minutes in this, Greg. You got you got time? Come on. All right. We are going to do one, one case. Let's do something big. This is a California jury returns $38.6 million award. Is that over limits? $36.8 million. Uh, and this had to do, uh, by the way, reduced cash value, $4,590,000. So Mike's point is again reiterated. 
Uh, and by the way, they're still appealing that. So we don't know how this is going to go on. But this is a published case. It's Bakersfield Memorial Hospital. And, Rick, that's in the middle of uh, the San Fernando, no, San no, Fernando no, Valley. No, right? no, it's in the middle of nowhere. Well, in any event, uh, this, was a, this is a perfect California rancher case. A uh, young man, 19 years of age, was herding cattle um, in July of 2010 when he suddenly slumped over on his saddle and had difficulty speaking. His father took him into the emergency department. They spent some time trying to decide what he had. He waxed and he waned. Finally, he got worse. And, of course, he'd had a stroke. We see a lot of 19-year-olds who have, without any uh, previous indication who have strokes, of course. Uh, in any event, they had experts who actually testified, I hate this, that uh, that uh, TPA should have been given. Now, the, of the two positive studies in TPA, which would be ECAS-3 and the NINS trial, they were all done on anterior circulation strokes. Nobody has one that has anything to do with posterior fossa, and this was somebody who had their basal, uh, the, the basilar artery. Don't get thrombosed. technical now, for crying out loud. I know. I shouldn't talk about this. The fact that there's no proof in any event, this thing went ahead and the jury thought, yeah, they, they, uh, even though it was over three and a half hours, yeah, because it was this and that, they still thought they should have given TPA. And uh, that's where this verdict came down. And I think this, is, this may be the largest verdict I've seen about TPA. But as I say, it's already been reduced back to $4 million. Nasty. Uh, listen, you want to do a wine of the month, and w- before we sign off here, Chief. Yes, and, and we Michael, will. Michael, you're you're invited to chime in here because I know that you're a fan of the grape as well. Yes. Just 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 leave me three minutes then. <laughs> uh, no, I do have a, something. I do have something uh, for you. Well, well, good. Why don't you go ahead and do it? We're happy to have another well, wine of the month. Well, the the um, advice I'd give to try is not a particular brand but a varietal and it's called the arnese a-r-n-e-i-s it's originally italian but we're beginning to see some arnese uh production in california arnese is literally translated as the rascal grape and it was originally called that because it was so difficult to cultivate and actually make wine. It's it's a white wine. It's uh, got bright, fruity flavors, but dry. It's something like a Sauvignon Blanc. Um, but most of the uh, most of the ones you'll see will be well under twenty dollars a bottle. Uh, you can often get them in the stores, although there are limited limited number of vine- vineyards which are actually producing it. Um, but you can usually get it for anywhere from 10 to $15 a bottle. Uh, it's a delightful wine. Um, if you go into a, a restaurant which has a good wine list, you may find one, uh, one bottle of Arnace on there. You ought to try it. By the way, for those of you who uh, don't understand what's happening in the wine market these days, California uh, has won so damn many awards, and Schrader, and, uh, you know, Opus One has become almost a thing of the past. I mean, there's so many great bottles of wine, and we've been helped out because the one area where we're doing great from California is we sell that wine to the Chinese. God love them. They saved almost single-handedly the Scotch, Scotland's Scotch market. 
That's where a lot of that expensive scotch is now going. And now they're buying some of the great expensive California wines. So, uh, so just as you watch this trend, I was looking today. Uh, some of the Schraders are going for $750 a bottle. How many people can there be in California who have $750 for a bottle of wine? That's a dollar a milliliter. <laughs> That's a dollar a milliliter. That's unbelievable. Well, Mike, listen, it's been a pleasure having you on. I hope we can uh, uh, press upon you again to be on the program, and it was a true pleasure, sir. My pleasure, and it'll be a pleasure to be on again with you guys. Yeah, Mike, I really look forward to it when we do this. You have a lot of insights, a lot of experience, and uh, we appreciate your taking the time with this. So signing off, guys. We'll talk with everybody next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye. 